I had a production note that I, I know he's using the same piano because that same <laughs> note is out of tune. It's the second note in the song, Look. and it's the same note. Welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong friends, lifelong musicians pick an album each week randomly from Robert Dimery's list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die to listen to, analyze, complain about, offer our various opinions on. This week, we've been listening to something definitely out of, I think, most of our wheelhouses. I won't speak for everyone. Thelonious Monk's Brilliant Corners. So excited to dive into that one. I'm sure there's going to be lots of great lyrical content to make fun of. and <laughs> A lot of production choices to talk about. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Oh, yes. yeah. Well, how did yeah. they choose those overdubs, guys? <laughs> right. At least there's no slant rhymes for Tom to get all riled up about. Right. <laughs> but so there, are some, there are some tuning issues that I'm sure I will, I'll be the only one bringing up. You still don't understand jazz. Right. So very, very excited to get into that. And we're going to go around the room in a moment, introduce ourselves with a short tweet length review. But just as a reminder, if you're hearing us, if you like what you hear, we really appreciate it if you smash that subscribe button or shoot us over a rating or a review or shoot us over an email or share this with a friend, any and all of the above. They're all meaningful to us. Uh, We like doing this and we love hearing from people and we love um, seeing those other ratings and those other pieces of feedback roll in. So please help us out by doing that if you're enjoying this. By the end of this podcast, we will have, I'm sure, analyzed this album to death and then we'll vote on whether or not it really belongs on the list of albums you must hear before you slip this mortal coil. So um, let's tend it around the room and everyone can give a little encapsulated review, a tweet length review, if you will, of Thelonious Monk's brilliant corners i'm gonna throw it to tom first i have a very short tweet length review here which is i wish i knew more about jazz (laughs) that's my tweet length review i I liked the album i wish i knew why i liked the album a little bit more than i do well stay tuned tom because i think i have lots to tell you and i think excellent i think we have lots to discuss here actually i think we know more than we than we might predict but sorry, I'm interrupting as Rob before I even give my tweet length review. I'll kick it to someone else next. But I wanted to mention, if you've been a longtime listener of the podcast, you may remember that pretty early in our run, we did another jazz album, Count Basie's The Atomic Mr. Basie. And we brought in a sort of a ringer jazz head in our friend Justin. And he did a very admirable job of giving us a lot of the history and background and made us feel under-researched generally, as, as we often are. And... But since then, I have to admit, I felt really like jazz was a big lack for me. So since then, for about a year, I've been really trying to school myself as much as possible. So certainly not saying I'm a a jazz aficionado just yet, but I feel like I've learned a lot in that year. And so I'm very excited to bring some of that knowledge to the fore on the discussion of this album. And and hopefully we can all learn something from that. But let's uh, continue right around the room and let's kick it over to Adam. Adam, what do you think? Hey, this is Adam. And my quick uh, quick note on this week is that appreciating music and liking music are not always the same thing. Mm. So true. So true. Let's roll it right along to Alan. Yeah, this is Alan. 
I feel like when I listened to this, my brain couldn't figure out whether I should be listening really closely or just chilling out and letting it all fade into the background. But I think you can you can serve both ends if you know that's what you're looking for. A lot of interesting stuff to talk about in these tweets. I'm excited to get into it, guys. Phil, please tell us yeah, how your week went. I think I think I would describe this record as uh, you know unconventional songs by unconventional people for unconventional times. <laughs> Fair enough. Right. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay, well, well, this is Rob here, and before I help frame up our conversation, I'll give you my tweet-length review, which is, if you like elaborate chord substitutions, unexpected but beautiful harmonies, and a there-are-no-wrong-notes approach to soloing, then I can confidently recommend Steely Dan. <laughs> but if you want to go farther back and see where these ideas came from, look no further than our man Thelonious ah, Monk. Yep. So... While we get into this, I think there are kind of three important contextual aspects that I want us to touch on in this conversation, apart from listening to the songs themselves, of course, and I'm about to play a snippet from the album very shortly. But as headlines, three aspects, I want to talk about where Thelonious Monk sits in the timeline, both the jazz timeline and the overall music timeline, and what is his relative importance to jazz and to music generally. I want to talk, of course, about where this album, Brilliant Corner, sits within a person like Thelonious Monk's own timeline, as we often do. And last, but I think not least, I want to talk a little bit about what does it even mean to have a jazz album, in quotes. This list is about albums, and I I think a lot of the hallmarks that we've come to think of as being hallmarks of albums are not really present on jazz albums, so they don't quite fit in this list. And I just think we should try to reckon with that. But before we get into some of those things, I can give us some background, some framing, and some of my own opinions on those those elements. Uh, let's just play a snippet of the title track. And I'm, I'm not going to start this at the beginning. I, I want to save the beginning for later when we talk about the track. But let's drop, we'll, we'll drop somewhere in the middle here of the track Brilliant Corners. I want to hear more about everyone's general impressions, but let me just give you a little bit of background on some of those elements I just mentioned. So where does Monk sit in the timeline? His nickname is, and everyone in jazz has cool nicknames, right? He's the high priest of Bop. Ah, he was a very right. early progenitor of basically a new jazz style called Bebop. So he's he's been around for a long time. In terms of the relative age of players, I this is sometimes what I think about jazz generationally. If you think about, let's say, that first generation of jazz, that big band jazz being folks like Count Basie and Duke Ellington in that era of these huge orchestral bands, then comes the second generation of guys like Monk and Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie, and they create jointly this thing called bebop, which is more about small bands and virtuosity and improvising 
and there obviously goes in some different directions. Then you get this kind of third generation of guys like Miles Davis and John Coltrane, who learned at the feet of that of Monk and Park, uh, Charlie Parker, aka Bird and Dizzy Gillespie. And then in the fourth generation, you get guys like Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter. And I think when we talk about not knowing jazz, what we really mean is that us as a friend group, we've reckoned a lot with jazz post, let's say, 1967 or 1965, meaning the Miles Davis stuff after that period, even Mm -hmm. though Miles Davis was active for maybe 15 years before that, and all the stuff that came through the 70s, all the fusion, all the Herbie Hancock's Headhunters, Wayne Shorter playing on Steely Dan records, all that kind of stuff that we're all pretty darn familiar with. But, and I, you know, we all kind of know that, right? So, but what we're less versed in and what I've been trying to school myself in is the jazz that kind of came from between 1945 and 1965. And that is definitely where Thelonious Monk sits. I have a quick question about the timeline here because I was, I guess I was sort of unaware of the sort of big band to small band evolution. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that became the birth of like the small jazz club, which is I think what this music really begs to be listened to in a small room where people are kind of talking, you're drinking, you know, smoky, maybe yeah, having dark, a little bit of that jazz cabbage ceiling. and stuff like that. Yeah, totally, right. totally. It's like, a you know, you go down the set of steps, uh, you know, from Speaking. the street level to get down yeah. into it type of place. Yes, I have some information on that. So, yeah, you're, you're, I think you're totally right on. it. They, they grew up together, right? And I, I'm reminded of that, this great David Byrne book called How Music Works, where he he answers that question in a lot of different ways in that book, but one of the, the pieces is about how the rooms in which music is played in and performed in arose in tandem with the music itself. And this is a great example of that. And part of what was happening at this time, this is like the Harlem Renaissance of the 1930s, where a lot of places that aren't built to be clubs or theaters, meaning small restaurants, small places with tiny stages, are becoming the place where people congregate and drink and have a good time. And hence that leads to that small band kind of attitude. And a- another thing occurs to me too, kind of referencing that David Byrne book was that, that always stuck with me. And I think it's applicable here too, is that he talked about how in the early days of classical music, before they had dialed in the the room where you see, you know, the symphony room and the, all the acoustics in that room, cla- people would go there and they would just talk through the performance. Well, as a result, the composers sort of responded by making the music even more bombastic to get kind of up over the din of talking, right? And then as the room and the acoustics got dialed in and as the culture became, hey, shut the hell up while you're listening to the orchestra play, well, the music was able to have a lot more of these subtleties. I think there's something similar going on here, which is I absolutely think that people were in these jazz clubs talking and being loud and the music had to be bombastic and kind of come out above that blast in your ear whether it was with dissonance or lots of notes or Mm -hmm. different rhythmic kind of bombs laid into the middle of of sections right so that's kind of some of the basis there and a lot of this music was specifically was originated in this place called mittens which was a harlem black owned and operated harlem club in the 1930s where Thelonious monk was part of the house band and charlie parker and dizzy gillespie were part of the house band and it was that thing we talked about with count Basie, like Everyone would just come up and jam. It was these cutting contests where they were trying to not only push boundaries, but also like prove their musical ability and try to like kick the people out who couldn't hang with the tough tunes, right? They were trying to write music to kick people off. 
How damn cool does it sound to just be somebody who lived in that neighborhood and just be able to kind of pop in there and just see these like every night just roll down? Right. One of the things I came across in just you know doing a little bit of uh, digging on on Thelonious was, and maybe you'll talk about this, Rob. But apparently, at one point, he was, I guess they called it a cabaret card, where he apparently had like a phony pot charge or something, and like wasn't allowed to play in the normal clubs anymore. So he started playing in like on people's like porches and it yeah just like yeah. basements and shit which sounds like that kind of like gorilla style of you know production he got pinched with some muggles and then the uh the fuzz came down on him <laughs> just just jazz cigarettes guys <laughs> so yeah no you're totally right so in this day and age in order to perform you had to have this thing called a cabaret card like a licensure from the state and if you had any kind of record and the story goes that Thelonious Monk actually took a heroin charge for a friend for like one of his protégés. He actually oh, wasn't. Geez. He's a famous eccentric, and I'm sure he did plenty of drugs in his day. But he didn't really. He isn't one of those guys that had a real drug problem. That wasn't kind of his main thing. So I think I think we can take that story as fact. But when he didn't have that cabaret card, to your point, he really he couldn't work. He couldn't make a living. He tried to play as often as possible. He tried to teach different people in his house different things, but. Let's talk about the story of Monk overall, right? Because I think that's important, which is he was a, a progenitor, but guys like Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie kind of got all the credit. So he's always felt a little underappreciated. He was someone that musicians knew through the 40s and into the 50s, but it took him a long time of playing and even making records before he started to get his due. It really wasn't, and that's where Brilliant Corners kind of comes in, because he's 40, in 1957, when this record comes out. Oh, wow. And he, okay. had, he had put out many records. He had written tons of song. Another fun thing about him is he's really known as a composer. He's both composer and performer. And the stat is that he's the second most recorded jazz composer in terms of his compositions being now jazz standards. The second mm-hmm. most re-recorded composer compared to Duke Ellington being the first. So a lot of his stuff has filtered into every other jazz band. I bet... One way or the other, we've heard his tunes in various concerts in various ways because a lot of them have become uh, standard. So especially in that early period, he was just writing a ton of stuff that you could say would be called hits or that you would find in the real book. So when uh, you say the early period, Rob, like you mean the 30s, the 40s? What do you mean the early period? So Mittens was really started to be a thing. So Thelonious Monk was born in 1917. Mm -hmm. So he's he's an older guy. So around the time... When he was a teenager, he toured with like a gospel evangelist for a couple of years, and that's where he kind of cut his teeth. But even before that, he had a bunch of classical training. And so one of the things about him is to know that he really did study a lot of different styles. He had this mystique about him through his career, and it even persists to today, that he's some kind of like untrained idiot savant on the piano. It's not true. He had classical training as a kid. He loved and appreciated classical music, especially some of the more romantic composers like Chopin and Rachmaninoff. Then he went and toured with a gospel group, got his education there. Then he sat at the feet in, back in New York City where he grew up. He sat at the feet of all the great like stride piano players like Fats Waller and Willie the Lion uh, Smith, I think the guy's name is. Art Tatum, I, I was he one wrong. of those guys? Art Tatum yeah, was exactly. of that generation. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. But one thing, and, and then he kind of tried to meld all those styles together. And so... So anyway, the point of the story is, right, he, he kind of struggled a long time to make a living. It wasn't until right around the time Brilliant Corners came out that he started to get his due. And it was right around that time 
he was like again musicians kind of knew who he was but he hadn't had a lot of commercial success even though he had been putting out records writing songs and other musicians had been making money off his songs as well brilliant corners comes out he walks down to Greenwich Village which is becoming this kind of like hip beat kind of haven right, right around that time and does a residency at this place called the five spot where John Coltrane's in the band and it's apparently and he just like plays four sets a night for like eight months in a row and all like the beatniks like Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac and all the cool people basically come to see him and that's when he really starts to gain so real this notoriety like the, this is like the 40s now like mid to late 40s no, now I'm talking about the late 50s so late 50s he started yeah. recording music in his 20s which would have been in sure. the 1930s Mm -hmm. He became the house piano player at a really happening place called Mittens as part of the Harlem Renaissance, where he, you know, basically learned a lot and sort of cultivated his style, wrote a lot of those early songs. So Not, that's like the 40s. That's like beat. That's the late right? 30s and 40s. That period, let's we can say, kind of ended with the beginning of World War II. Mm -hmm. Right. The party was kind of over. People went off to join sure. the war and all that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. and, and things were different. Yep. And then he had he had recording contracts from, you know, 45 you know, for the next 10 years, he was he was touring, he was trying to make his living, he was playing with a lot of different people, but he wasn't selling a lot of records. Brilliant mm -hmm. Corners is what begins to change that, but it doesn't come out until 1957. And right around this time, basically right after Brilliant Corners comes out, is when he goes and finds his new audience, which is like the hip cats, the beatniks mm -hmm. in Greenwich Village at a club called The Five Spot. He does this residency with John Coltrane in the band, and uh, you know other notables but that's probably the biggest notable and it's like remembered as this like coming out party to the rest of the world where suddenly he's able to start selling records brilliant corners is like with well, the first record that he puts out that is sort of well reviewed and mm -hmm. and then the back catalog starts selling and he kind of goes from there sorry i'm just curious about like what were these early records what do they consist of because if he's known for having been you know a composer and if that wasn't normal but all this recording was happening. Was it just recording of like, were standards even a thing at that point? Like yes. what were they recording? A great question. So he was recording his own music as well as standards. So it was a uh, one, one of the challenges, right. And this leads us into the third element I mentioned, which is what is the jazz album even, right? Because Monk started early enough that when he was recording, he was recording in the 78 era, meaning the size of records. So we're talking about like singles, you know, even pre 45 singles. And a lot of times what it would be, it'd be somebody with like some kind of mobile tape machine who just showed up at a club that night. It would happen to get a piece of a performance and would press it directly to a record. Now, when, if you look on Spotify or some similar music service, what you'll see is his first releases are actually collections of those early recordings. And I think, I think the collection is called genius of modern music, volume one and two, and they contain a lot of his early compositions and, and some of those early recordings you know, then he, but he segued from that into actually trying to do sessions with various bands. The way jazz bands and albums worked back then was was like, if we think about an album as the distilled essence of a band going into, you know, a similar group of people going into one place for some condensed amount of time and recording songs they'd never recorded before and then producing them with a lot of overdubs like none of that stuff's happening in a jazz album we're talking none, about different lineups right. on each track we're talking about single or maybe a few takes of each song with zero overdubs we're often re-recording the same songs that we've done previously recorded previously but with a new band or a new lineup trying to change change the arrangement and this was a time where like jazz was trying to constantly just 
shuffle arrangements around and see if they could get a new flavor on stuff. So that included standards. Like he did Duke Ellington songs and he did older romantic songs and songs from the Great American Songbook. And he's a huge fan of that stuff. And in fact, one of the songs on Brilliant Corners is something like that. And he also did his own material, right? And he ha- he was kind of developing his style all along the way. So I think a jazz album, unlike, or say, a rock album, especially at this time in 1957, it was just like trying to capture a snapshot of a band. That's really all it was doing. Well, it's almost, it was like the the equivalent back then of like, you know, filming or taping like a dead show. And it probably wasn't socialized as much or distributed, but, you know, just sort of capturing that live that live feel. Exactly. Capturing the live feel was what was key. Getting the, getting the right take usually. And, you know, jazz heads usually just, they don't talk about albums as much as they talk about lineups. They go, oh, that was great when, the, when Thelonious Monk was playing with Coltrane at the five spot. That was an exciting lineup. And it's represented here on this album, uh, this live album or whatever. But it's not really about the album itself or even about the songs they do on the album. It's about the interplay of the exciting lineup. And so that hints at one of the reasons why Brilliant Corners... I think made it to the list in the first place, which it is a killer lineup of jazz musicians. So this is a lot of exposition to get to talking about Brilliant Corners itself. But yeah, it's a killer lineup of players. The compositions are are tough enough to break, even these great players. Yeah, yep. Broke them down mentally a little bit. And uh, let's let's talk about the personnel real quick, because this is, I think, a big part of it, right? You got Sonny Rollins on tenor sax. He went off to be his own band leader and... He's considered maybe the greatest living jazz legend. Still, he's still alive now. He's still alive. He is. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> he has like uh, in his like Wikipedia picture, he has almost like Doc Brown hair, like the wispiest <laughs> white Doc afro. Yeah. It looks it looks yeah. kind of amazing. Yeah, yeah, he looks he looks pretty good for like you know however old he is. I'd guess you know hundred. <laughs> <laughs> he's getting up there, dude. He's, he's ni- ninety-one years old. Oof. So he's awesome in his own right. He's awesome composer in his own right. He's got a couple great. He's got a great record out there called Saxophone Colossus. If you want to listen to that, they do Mac. He's and got Knife. that tune Saint Thomas. I always love that Saint tune Thomas. Saint Thomas because it doesn't have. It's just drums and a saxophone, but you hear all the chord changes and they're kind of hard, right? Like you that's know, literally like, why yes, that's literally the first song on Saxophone Colossus. It's such an awesome album. It's such an awesome such song. Good. He's great. He's got that song Sunny Moon for Two, which is like a total jazz standard. Uh, Tenor Madness, another one of his. Anyway, he's great. He's a great player. And then you have Max Roach on drums, which, dude, this guy is on every fucking recording. Like, it, managers, if you drafted him into your fantasy jazz musician league, you're doing awesome. <laughs> Max Roach is on my favorite jazz album, which is that Duke Ellington album, Money Jungle. It's, it's Max Roach, Charlie Mingus, and Duke Ellington just doing like fusion versions of old Duke Ellington songs. It's it's amazing, and he is a he's a beast who has a really interesting sense of time and rhythm. Not wrong, just interesting. <laughs> yeah, so so he's great. Yeah, he played with Miles. He played with Duke Ellington. He he led his own band. God, I'm looking at his his discography. Is I mean, it's it it might be approaching Willie Nelson territory, <laughs> right? Of uh, <laughs> That's impressive. You got Ernie Henry on alto sax. He's one of the guys who broke down mentally and sadly died of a heroin overdose uh, within a year of this being released. But he was kind of a protege of Monk, who seemed to be on his way to a great career, but unfortunately drugs got in the way. You have this guy Oscar Pettiford on bass, who was a band leader in his own right as well. So this was kind of a super group, right? There's this anecdote about Oscar Pettiford having inadvertently discovered Cannonball Adderley. 
who at the time was just an unknown music teacher who tricked his way onto the bandstand in like a jam situation by pretending he had had some other musical credits and then just like killed it in a solo and they were like oh shit who is this guy <laughs> that's so way to awesome. do it. yeah <laughs> just another interesting tidbit that I, that I gotta throw out there a little little hometown pride is that one of max roach's longtime collaborators uh he was like a co-band leader with uh clifford brown oh, yeah, which yeah. i'm sure you guys all know clifford brown yeah. from the clifford brown jazz festival in wilmington yeah yeah he had just he was getting that group off the ground and sonny rollins was in that group too and unfortunately clifford brown and one of the other players died in a car crash very very tragically uh right right as they were kind of getting off the ground so yeah very sad and then when ernie henry and oscar pettiford basically quit the band because the songs were too hard they got paul chambers who's the <laughs> bass player on kind of blue so a real killer and uh and yeah, if he can't Terry. handle it i think it's uh just not worth <laughs> it <laughs> anyway so it was it was definitely a super group you know dude by the way i want to throw out there that paul chambers is 21 when this album is recorded he is a fresh because he also he was not like a protege but he, he loved oscar pettiford and that was kind of like one of the guys that like sort of got him into into playing and uh yeah but he was 21 when he recorded uh, Bemsha Swing on this album, which is kind of crazy. I was doing nothing of value at 21. Not a single <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I've, I've given plenty of background. I, I guess I want to hear a little more about what you guys think about the overall record, what the experience was like, and then we can segue that into talking about Monk's style and, and some of the challenges with this music. And then, of course, we could talk about the individual tracks. So I'll just kick it to the group. Any, any more thoughts um, of, of what this week was like for you? You know, what I, I what I think is interesting about the record, you know, thinking about, you know, from the, the standpoint of like uh, a record, right? Like something that you play from beginning to end. I think it's what's particularly interesting is the way I find that some of the most challenging material is up front. Like he wants yes, you to get I was totally like he wants to hit you yep. like right in the face immediately with like it's like the this, it's the ween method. This, yeah, it's the like ween. if you can get yeah. through track one, then I'll give you uh, like you know, then you're cool. We'll give you a little bit more cruise <laughs> yeah. after that. But <laughs> well, yeah, man. But that's also the ba- the the badass track. Like the longer I've sat with sure. this record, the more brilliant corners has wormed its way into my brain, and I have it running yes. through my head. It's so weird. But it's fucking great. You know, I, I, my note on this is that I think that Brilliant Corners as a title for this album is perfect because you really do need to examine it as a whole in all of its corners to, like, really understand the brilliance of it. First pass listen, it's a little bit inaccessible and it can play as background music but like it doesn't like nothing hooks you right away it's not like oh yeah that thing is just as soon as i heard that that was in my head you have to give it repeat lessons and you have to sort of revisit it and then understand it as a whole and the totality of it and it's almost like like so much of jazz is subverting expectations right it is you think i'm going to play this note and i play a different note and the first time through you're just like well that's just the wrong note okay I thought you were playing a melody that you had established and then you played it and you played wrong notes in there and that's wrong. Okay, moving on. But the more you listen to it, the more you realize that like it is all about that sort of tightness at the head and then expand, 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 expand and then bring it back to tightness again and it, you get that appreciation yeah, for the Yeah, there's thoughtful abstractions. But, right, yeah. but like what's interesting I think about Brilliant Corners is like at the top of the song, right? I'm talking like the first moments it's just like 
You know, like, I don't know. I don't know if those are, like, ninths or whatever, but, like, he's just playing two notes that are right on top of each other. Like, oh, yeah. No, it's literally it's literally no. a C-sharp and a D. Like, in yeah. the, the fourth Super note. Super dissonant. Is, is yeah. Super yeah, dissonant. exactly. Um, and, I, and so it's interesting the way, Tom, it's almost like he gives you the... The, the the maximum right like uh, like the the maximum, yeah, the maximum complexity. Of, uh, extrapolation yeah like this is yeah. your opportunity uh, to leave <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah exactly uh, and so, then if you get through that it's like he drops into the like this you know the swing bebop sort of vibe so this is what i think both requires context and not because on the one hand i was struck by how this still feels avant-garde even now yeah sure we're 70 years on here. This is crazy. If you told me this was Robert Glasper's new project or Medeski's new project or something, I'd be like, yeah, okay. It's funny that you mentioned that. I, one of the things I wrote down was that I, I felt like it was surprisingly like when I think of jazz from this era, right or wrong, it's just my mental model is that it is just very stale and you sort of like forget about it after about 30 seconds. I went in expecting that, you know, when I saw, I mean, you know, I've heard of Thelonious Monk. I think we all have some familiarity at least, but I was expecting just kind of frankly, like boring, stale jazz. And it was not that, like, I was actually really surprised at how kind of vibrant it felt in some ways. Like it still had some of those elements, but um, I thought it was remarkably fresh and like vibrant. It's hip. Yeah. I, I remember reading in college and I majored in English because, you know, I didn't want to work hard in college. So. Fact check. You didn't read shit in college. <laughs> I read the, the poem Bop by Langston Hughes, actually. And that poem always stuck with me. It was a really great poem. They talk about what the sound, they called it Bop because that was the sound that the police baton made, police batons made on your head when it hit you. It'd be like Bop, Bop, Bop. Jesus. Um, yeah. <laughs> if we're talking about 1950s America, you, you can't just be like, well, you know, there's no racism there. It wasn't like these guys were a depressed underclass and that brought out the best in them. I read a monk, the quote unquote definitive monk biography, the Robin D.G. Griffin biography of him and a couple fun anecdotes around that. And maybe you guys, maybe this is a well-known thing, but they talked about how the slang that we still use today of calling each other man was specifically a response in the black community of being called boy all the time. And it started amongst huh. jazz musicians and then perpetrated back as like a and and the other one i heard was that speaking of a uh, violence in new york city is that a lot of times if you were black and you were downtown like below a certain street there was this method that they had of carrying a lead pipe in a manila folder like just in case the shit went down <laughs> that was that was how you hid the Wait, weapon in plain sight you're saying if you were across 110th street <laughs> <laughs> right so it was it was definitely different. Also, here's another fun hometown anecdote since you brought up Clifford Brown is that uh, Thelonious Monk was once pulled over in our fabulous home state of Delaware and beaten with a blackjack by police. Mm, Jesus. My God. Of course. Surprising. Wilmington. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. So Wilmington on the map. Yeah. Okay. But, on, but on, the, on the hipness of the record, I think it's important to note that like he was isolating even to people of the day. They were tr- bebop as a as a genre was trying to be weird and challenging. It was trying to find new and more dissonant harmonies and rearrange rhythms and, 
and, and do a lot of different things to push music forward. But even in that crew, Thelonious Monk was extra strange. I found this little quote that is from the liner notes of the original record, which is, Monk's music is decidedly not designed for casual listening. Monk and his music demand the most difficult thing any artist can require of his audience, attention. So... From from a totally like just like a, a sort of academic musical standpoint, like if you pull up some of these charts, like if you pull up the chart for Brilliant Corners, it's basically all dominant seventh chords, right? So like, what does that mean? That means like you're literally changing key all the time. Sometimes it, it's, yeah, it's, it's the key free for all. It's, it's a free whatever, for all. You know? Yeah, but well, <laughs> yeah. the thing is though, it's not a free for all. It's 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 actually like the opposite of that. It's like you always have to know exactly where you are because only so many things are available to you. One of the things I read about this the title track and one of the things that made it so like hard on the other musicians was that they they had a hard time soloing and apparently he asked them to solo over the the melody and and that was the only way that they could like keep track of where these changes were and because of the all the weird time movements and and key movements and things like that so i don't know i thought that was interesting and they were but, like melody or the head <laughs> i guess yeah, yeah i was going to say what's the what's the let's, through line let's segue cuz this is a good segue into talking about the song brilliant corners we've talked a little bit about the beginning so we're going to go ahead and play that. But here's what you should listen for. We talked about the little intro, a couple bars, where Monk immediately gives you a lot of dissonance. He's laying in on a minor second harmony, meaning two keys right next to each other, right away. And he tends to favor the tritone harmony as well, that diminished fifth harmony on two mm-hmm. keys, which sounds just real crunchy. Then the band kicks in, and it's got a weird number of bars. And then when they come around and repeat it, they double time it. So we're going to play a snippet of that now. Like, like we said, this still sounds new. It's 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 difficult for a couple reasons. One, because the riffs are weird and going in sort of diatonic ways you're not expecting. Like that that opening, the opening riff, or the, the let's say the main riff of the song, 
I believe uses eleven of the twelve diet like chromatic notes. Like it's it does it has no key. Like it just does, it uses every note, and he's into using every note. In fact, one of his famous sayings is, "There's no wrong notes on the piano." And this this uh, that's my kind of instrument. Yeah, I think this performance. Yeah, exactly. Uh, secondly, it's in a weird bar format. So it's twenty two bar tune that goes eight seven seven. And it's played at sort of halftime, and then it's played at regular time, or it's played at regular time, and then it's played at double time the second time through. And third, since you were talking about the soloists, I think all that made it difficult for them. But there were some more compounding factors. <laughs> that made it difficult. Because <laughs> <laughs> these are guys at the top of their game, right? Sure. So Monk was eccentric in a lot of ways. He demanded, A, that people learn by ear. He did not write charts, unless... <laughs> Wait, he did not write charts no. for these songs. No. Yo, no. So these guys show up as <laughs> that is not cool as jazz musicians would, and are just expecting to kind of play along with the tune because that's how good these guys typically were. But that yeah, that would that was a real challenge. He really believed in the concept of learning things by ear as a way to better encode information. And I he I'm sure he could be a, a jackass about it at times, but I have to say like having undergone some recent training and I've learned some of his songs as well recently on the piano or pieces of them anyway, I, I see what he's saying. It encodes it in a different way when you are forced to learn uh, by ear than reading it off a chart. There's a certain laziness that comes with reading it, right? It, it does. But if you are going into the studio totally cold and having to play that shit, I, you know, even if you're the best of the best, like that's, that's a tall order. Well, I say, especially if you're the best of the best, cause you're probably used to fucking cruising. You're probably used to just coming in and being like, yeah, I got it. That's cool. And then you come in you're like, well, I haven't had to work this hard since right. I was way worse at my instrument. And that's, that's exactly what Monk would have hated. He hated the idea that music could get stale in that way. And there's another thing, which is you talked about soloing over the melody. Well, one of the things that, that made Monk a prickly character especially in those early days, is there was this tradition at the time in the small bands that when another player was soloing, the other players kind of lay out, play the simple chords, you know, hit on the one, that kind of stuff, right? Monk absolutely refused to lay out. He only, he insisted <laughs> he that, that what, what was going on in a band was about interplay between parts. So you'll hear throughout this album, you'll hear his piano over other people's solos or under them, interject with weird rhythms new notes and that really threw people off but it also inspired people so like people knew that he was great and really trying to push things forward and when he had when it really worked it was the interplay of of him and a soloist or you know vice versa and he expected the band to do that under him by the way too that was just how he saw music working not as this like you get around and everyone else do nothing then the next guy gets around and everyone else does nothing so he was really committed to kind of keeping it fresh exciting Every chorus, chorus is what they call one time through the chart, or one time through a section of the chart. Every chorus was was really different uh, for that reason. One thing that stuck out to me that really didn't hit, I probably made it through this album 10, 10, 12 times. Something that didn't stick out till probably the ninth time was something that Sonny Rollins said in an interview in the 80s was that as a pianist, Monk was one of the only guys that could sit and play a tune by himself in tempo and do it for an hour. And that kind of came through in this first this first tune because as he opens up the song, dun, 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 right there, he set the tempo. Bop, 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 bop. Now that's cool. Now you could sit down and you could say bop, bop, bop and probably stay with a metronome just by yourself in your own head. You could probably do that for maybe 30 seconds. These guys do it for a minute. 
But amongst the silence are these weird hits, sure. these strange counts where they're doing where they're doing a measure of nine. And when the band kicks in, they are still right on the same beat per minute tempo. I counted it out myself. In fact, I took the headphones off <laughs> and counted one, two, because I couldn't keep, even knowing <laughs> what was going on, I couldn't keep counting myself with everything that was going on. So the fact that these guys are able to do this live and be dead on, holy shit, these guys are, are well, nuts. It's a good point, you know, Adam, is that like, you know, and, and Rob, you alluded to it at the top, but like, you know, when, when was this recorded? 57? Like, this was cut live to one inch tape there were probably four tracks tops yeah. might yeah. have been a oh, stereo recording in the room like this was it one sounded like there's two mics one mic yeah, on each totally. side of the room stereo, yeah. Stereo yeah. Stereo yeah. Room. Yeah. like yeah. yeah it's insane it's insane this was just this, this happened right you know phil i remember uh you and i took that jazz improv sure. class in college and you remember that that girl, a woman, I guess, we call her a woman, but we were all kids, but whatever, who was like a classical piano player. Keep going. She was the only woman in the class, piano player, classical piano player, really good at the piano, could not do this kind of improv at all. It was very much like, you teach me what to play and I'll play it, but not, I understand this so much that I can play around it. And yeah, I, that's yeah, I the thing mean. that yeah. really struck me about this. I was thinking back to that. I think I brought it up before that H. John Benjamin album. Well, I should have where he basically says, like, it sounds like these jazz guys don't even know how to play the piano. They're just kind of plinking along and making noise. And so he gets a hot jazz band. And he doesn't know how to play the piano when he tries to be the piano player. And it just sounds horrendous. And. <laughs> The thing is, it's that's the funniest thing I've heard, by the way. I looked looked that up the first time you mentioned it like a year ago, and it the joke is good for maybe three minutes, and then it gets a little stale. (laughs) But the intro of this song, you listen to it, and you're like, I could do that. It sounds like he's just plinking and making noise, but it's so much more than that. So much more. You can't do that unless you understand what you're playing to its absolute core, and then you can do all the playful things around it that still give you that essence of it because you don't lose the essence even when they're dancing around it which is so fucking hard or like at the beginning of brilliant corners where it sounds like garbage yeah that's what i'm talking about <laughs> i think it sounds i think it sounds great but it takes it, it takes cool some too. settling just, in for sure and for sure. listen it's you know that a guy like monk has a singular style because if anyone else even plays like him and i confirm this with like my piano teacher and a few other people they just sound like imitations of him Right. Which is to say the dissonant, you know, chromatic. He's really chromatic. He's really he's really dissonant in his harmonies. He's really rhythmically strange. He leaves a lot of space sometimes. And one thing that that jumps out to me that feels very anti jazz in a sense that he is, is anti virtuoso. And, and this is something that dogged him through his career, where people would almost challenge him, almost like Bruce Lee would get challenged to fight or something. Oh, does, he, does this guy really know Kung Fu? It's like people would say, well, why don't you just play like Art Tatum or Oscar Peterson, who were two different generations of really fast, really technically proficient right. piano players. Monk could do that. I've, there's videos of him doing it. He's extremely quick. He's extremely well-versed in classical music as well. But he was anti-using that as a crutch. Instead, he wanted to just throw you off. He like reveled in discomfort. And it reminded me a little bit when I was reading about him of 
it's a leap, but it reminded me a little of Norm Macdonald. I heard this anecdote about the great Norm Macdonald stand-up comedian once, <laughs> that when he would bomb on stage, he really bombed. You know, he, he kind of reveled in it. But particularly, it'd be like after the show, a lot of comedians do meet and greets where they, they shake hands with everybody who went to the show. The only time Norm would do that was when he bombed because he wanted to make <laughs> sure that you were uncomfortable seeing him again. That's a full that's, experience. That is amazing. That is great. What a what a lunatic, man! I love that. I love that guy's work. He was so hilarious. Well, I, I really like that stance because I, I one of the things that I've always one of the reasons that I've always been a little intimidated by jazz is the the I don't want to call it noodling, but there's a the, the virtuosity. Just that my art is how much I can play how quickly I can play, how many different scales and modes. And I really, I find it kind of refreshing to have a, you know, more scaled back version. Yeah. So some people call him the Picasso, the first Picasso of jazz in a sense that he, he shunned that virtuosity in favor of really studying and having total control of the elements so that he could actually mold them into something new and challenging and and obviously you can kind of tell where i'm coming from here which is I've, I've sort of fallen in love with monk over the last year both through my own study of piano reading his autobiography which is one of several jazz kind of memoirs i read trying to get a little more acquainted with this world and i, I really do like his style and, and respect him a lot so the leaving of space too, to to your point like so often good playing is equated with how many notes just in a volume basis i can play in his concerts a lot of times he would just get up from the piano and dance around to like the rest of the band playing for a while and then and then sit back down when he wanted to start playing again like stuff like that he's weird it's it's funny you mention it because this struck me as like anti-danceable. <laughs> like if you were to be like, dance to this song for like, you're getting married. It's your first dance. Dance to this song. And like, what do you want me to do? Everyone falls yeah, over. Right. It is. Why? It is anti. This this song is anti-danceable. Definitely. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's danceable, but I did feel like it had that that the grooves were were there and that there was a lot of like head bobbing material which i don't yeah, really like the, get from the this. minute and a half it yeah yeah when, when they kick up. into double time right okay so we're, we're yeah. kind of burying the lead here right but this song was unlike many other jazz recordings with top-notch players of its ilk uh 25 incomplete takes that the band went through and Whew, they were, were not satisfied so that's that's a lot of takes and over how many this is is this in I one day in that one they day, did it because they did things fast oh, back then. God. I, it makes me, I like i'd really love to hear take two <laughs> <You know? laughs> well here's the thing can you imagine how angry just, and just yeah, slamming his sacks <laughs> and you're like god damn it. Give some how charts. stressed out you'd be on take 24 yeah. like so oof. apparently the so the final version that we're listening to was cut together from those takes by the ah. producer so it's a it's some no yeah, so it's an amalgam. I don't know, you can't hear the cuts or anything. But in particular, they were all struggling with it, I think. But in particular, that alto player, Ernie Henry, said he broke down mentally and didn't even want to come back like for the next day or however long the sessions were. They were either like two or three days. That is part of why Monk finishes the album with a solo tune on piano and then recruits some other members of the band for the last tune. <laughs> You know, I have to say, from the standpoint of being in a studio, the most stressful thing is when you're on, like, take nine or ten, and you're, like, a minute left in the song, and you're like, I just got to land this plane. I just got to land this plane. Yeah. 
And it leads you to play a lot more tight and not do cool and inventive things because you're like, I just don't want to mess I up. I just need to get through it. But you just it. can't yeah. do that with this kind of music. You can't just be like, well, I'm just going to play exactly what, you know, I'm just going to play the chords exactly as they are because it would suck all the life out of it. So I can kind of see why they had to cut it together because there's got to be a lot of that anxiety going on. Okay. I think we've spoken enough about this first track. I want to roll right into... There's only five tracks in this album, so we can touch on all of them at least briefly. Let's play a snippet of the second track, which is called Baloo Bolivar Balooza. First off, that is intended to be Monk's very strange pronunciation of Blue Boulevard Blues. Boulevard is the hotel where his lady friend and benefactor and Rothschild Panonica, this this duchess, or rather a baroness, sorry, lived when she was in New York. I'll just say right off the bat, I think to me this is like the straightest song on the album. I assume it was put next to the weirdest song on the album on purpose. I thought the same is that it there like uh, you guys said it's a bit of a reward. All right, you got through track one, which really really puts you off kilter. Track two, here's something nice. It was nice for me too because I had known this from the album Monk's Dream, which came out after this, where he recovered this tune, and I think it was mainly bass, piano, and drums, no horns. So immediately for me, it was a nice lifeline. I was like, oh, okay, yes, a song I know, something I can sink my teeth into. So I enjoyed this version and the placement on the album as well. Since, since you did mention one other Monk album, because I actually think that might be the easiest Monk album to like as a first pass is Monk's Dream. And particularly the song Monk's Dream might be my favorite Thelonious Monk tune. It's very accessible, I find. Nothing about this album is accessible. And I can't even really say that these are his most well-known tunes. Like, if you look at just the top 20 songs he's known for, maybe Brilliant Corners cracks that list, but it's the best. I know mm-hmm. Bemshia Swing from somewhere, but it might, I feel like it's maybe on like a Modesky Martin and Wood record. They do that and Lively Up Yourself kind of mashed together. Bemshia Swing and Lively Up Yourself. It's on, it's Jungle in here, I think. But yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's What's a hot it song. The one comment I have to make about this song, and it, it is all Max Roach. He goes through so many minutes of this song without hitting a snare at all. (laughs) Just keeps time on the ride. And then starting at about like a minute 50, for about a minute 20, he just starts hitting the snare in the most random places. (laughs) And he is not in any way doing the one, two, three, four that you get from rock drums. He's just... It, It seems completely haphazard. And it works so well. It's really, it's just damn cool. 
Like I listen to it, I'm like, that's so hard to do. It's almost like you just have this one limb that is moving completely independently of everything else. It's like not aware of what your right hand your or your left foot or your right foot are doing, and it's just kind of doing its own thing. It's it's so damn cool. I went back and listened to that so many times. Just taste out the wazoo and also on the drums you know you're you're charged as being a timekeeper you're charged with like being the glue that kind of holds everything together rhythmically and to just throw these arrhythmic things in there and not lose that cohesion it's really hard to do so i feel like i want to comment because two things one is that part of what was happening with jazz around this time or maybe you know earlier in the bebop days was expressly a freeing up of who was the rhythm keeper and who was not meaning i think it i think part of what this jazz movement did in the first place was free up drums to be to drop they called them rhythm like bombs like in the middle of of stuff and instead of always having to be the only timekeeper and and second and this is a great thing just to go google I, i pulled a couple but there's this famous I guess it was like a handwritten list that Monk gave to somebody, 25 tips for musicians, but it's republished all across the internet. And one of them is um, just all this little Monk wisdom and stuff that he was dropping on this guy. One is, just because you're not the drummer doesn't mean you don't have to keep time. Yeah. Thank sure. you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I get down. To all the guitar players out there. <laughs> well, also, I, I definitely felt like this, you know, back to like, monk and his like impeccable you know time he he has a very percussive quality about his playing too even though when he lays back it's it's a little more like it seems random but i think otherwise his playing is very like it almost reminds me of a guitar player who's who comes across as you know they're like slapping their guitar in a certain way to just generate those percussive rhythms and i I think he he fills that in a little bit here He's absolutely a, per- a percussive player. I-, I totally agree. And I think it's one of the most interesting things about his playing is is how like he'll just uh, rhythmically throw things in there that you weren't expecting. Like a yeah, drummer his, would. his chord comping is incredibly interesting, right? And I think probably maybe adds more to the, I don't want to say the compositions, but like the recording, right? The performance, potentially more than anything, right? Because it does, it does sort of tease something out of, the soloist in particular. But on this song, it's real minimal. Like his piano playing is never overbearing on this song. And he just kind of plays those chords in the background that again, if you don't know exactly what chord you should be playing, you don't know how to play not that chord and have it still sound good. He does that a lot where it's like, this is the chord that should be kind of like uh, is implied by everything else. And the piano player often would be playing that chord. He's like, I'm not going to play that chord. I'm going to play something else. And it really is. It's really additive. It's it's just, you know, and this is something that I, I sort of one of my notes is like, it's just damn cool. And what is it about jazz that is just cool? It's a kind of a, as you mentioned earlier, Alan, it's kind of has a reputation of being like kind of like a stodgy sort of fuddy-duddy. Like this is what, um, you know, 65-year-old retired investment bankers listen to type of thing. But uh, I just find it to be really cool, really hip. But I, I think I think it was said in this conversation maybe by, by Alan or maybe Tom as well, which is it has that reputation because if you're a great player, you can coast. And that creates bad music that is not cool. 
Yeah. <laughs> but staying on your tippy toes at all times, either because you're passionate or because the other players are forcing that upon you or foisting that upon you, if you will, is what makes for really interesting music that forces your attention. That's mostly what I think this is. Although, for the record, I think this track is the low light for me. I don't think it justifies its runtime. It's a little too normcore in the Oof. in the context of this. Yeah. No, way too long. Although I did think this song of all of them had, in my opinion, the best solos for whatever that's worth, probably because it was seemed like the, maybe the most blues oriented type of song. There's one mm. in particular there's during the bass solo, he does these little slides or bends or something. He does it like two or three times and snapped me out of whatever, like, you know, distraction I was getting into at that point. not super remarkable agreed okay let's move it along to track number three panonica again this is named after monk had this benefactor friend platonic friend by all accounts a baroness part of the rothschild family from europe she was a jazz patron who traveled the world in, in the coolest ways. And Monk was very close to her, but she also was a, a general promoter and booster of other jazz musicians in New York. And I think she helped him, you know, she bought him a piano at one point. She helped set up shows in Europe. There's also this through line I should mention too of when jazz, especially this new thing called bebop was not really happening. It was, it was happening in New York, but it wasn't popular in America yet. Europe can do it pretty quickly. And so a lot of these players were going to Europe and having a lot more success or getting record sales in Europe or getting better tours in Europe, getting better turnout. And, you know, that was uh, that was exciting for them. So having kind of European connections was definitely a part of that that scene. Anyway, this is his tribute to her. Let's play a snippet of Panonica. Is there like a website that I can apply for the job of rich jazz benefactor on? Because that sounds pretty damn cool. I would I would like that a lot. Just like, oh, yeah, no, I just get I to go around, listen to music in clubs, find struggling musicians and be like, ah, yeah, you need a new drum set. I got that. Don't worry about it. Yeah, no, I'm going to I'm going to jet on over to Paris. You want to come with me and play in a bunch of clubs in Paris? It sounds. Yeah. You start off as a wealthy heiress. That's probably that's probably a good. I'm just throwing it out there. If anybody needs to fill that role of, uh, you know, wealthy heir with good taste, I can, uh, you know, I can try to see what I can do to fill that. Fill that void. Yeah. Okay, so one of the things that jumps out to you on this one is that he's playing this thing called a Celeste. Just yeah, a bell yeah, well, piano. I, I was hoping you would That's know exactly what that is. Because it doesn't sound quite like a xylophone, right? No. Or a vibraphone. It's it, the same thing that's being... It's a Mr. Rogers instrument. 
Right. It's the same. It's it's like a full size piano, but it's bells instead of strings, and it's the same thing that's used on Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy in the Nutcracker. Ah, okay. I was like, is he playing them simultaneously? Yes. Is he like rocking a two hand? Correct. Wow. He's got them at right. right angles to each other, so he can play the piano with his left hand and the celeste with his right hands i thought because i was confused i thought i I saw a picture of the celeste and i was like oh it's just like kind of like a like another piano like a Rhodes or something like that type of piano and then i heard the high bellish sounds i was like is that like a vibraphone i was searching for like a vibraphone credit yeah Yeah, i was like like what is that sound but okay that's the celeste the the left hand right hand threw me off a lot totally no i thought for a minute that they actually put overdubs in because for a while he's just playing well he definitely switches between them and he plays two hands on them at various times but there's somewhere in the middle where he's soloing with his right hand on the celeste and he's comping with his left hand on the piano and i was like wait is this an overdub but lo and behold in the liner notes they actually (laughs) call attention to the fact that he just had them at right angles to each other with a swivel Oh, nice. I will throw this out there as a total aside, but uh, the gimmick of playing two pianos, I'm sure it's probably not actually all that hard, but it looks really cool <laughs> as a gimmick. There's that Alicia Keys medley on YouTube. It's, it's called, like, uh, I Wish I Wrote That or something like that, where she plays a bunch of songs that she wished she wrote, but she has two pianos set up. But they're two grand, so it's not like a, to- a totally different sound or anything. But she's playing two pianos, and it just looks damn cool. It's like the playing the guitar behind your back or, like, you know, With over, your teeth. over your head type of thing. Yeah, exactly. I know it's a gimmick, but I fall for it every time. I think it's probably a little challenging. Just in, in my mind, I'm not a great piano player, but in your head, you know, when you get to the point where you can kind of start closing your eyes, you know the distance between your yeah. hands, and that's mm. how you're able to judge octaves. If you take your hand and put it, you know, a foot and a half, three feet away, that's that's something I, else. So I kind of yeah, I was thinking that too. To me, it's maybe more akin to if you've ever tried to play guitar for guitar players without having an anchor point like to find the right string without your somewhere your hand touching the guitar which creates like an right. anchor if your point. thumb wasn't wrapped your thumb wasn't wrapped around the fretboard if you were just laying it on top no i mean yeah, literally be, in my i'm uh, saying in my pick hand maybe well, maybe i'm the only one but i'm saying in my pick hand i know what mm. string i'm on because my pinky or some part of my hand is always kind of touching oh, the body i feel you that's like an yep. anchor point yep. that gives me a reference to where i am with the pick and without that that would be much mm-hmm. more difficult I would say as a bass player, I always rest my thumb on top of either the neck pickup or the or on the neck. And that's one of the things that messes me up a lot when I go to do like slap stuff and I don't have my thumb resting on that to give me that anchor point. I, I tend to miss the strings a lot more when I do that. I'm also just not a particularly good slap player. Or if I'm being honest, not a particularly good bass player. So where do you normally keep the where do you keep the pick generally? Like where does that sit oh. on the bass? Um, <laughs> it's up your ass. I just have it. I have it stuck in my teeth, and I just like hold it there so I can spit it into the crowd at one point for all those adoring fans that are clamoring for a piece of Tom memorabilia. <laughs> so, so back to Panonica. Did and did this remind you of any other well-known? Fly me to the moon. Yes, totally. Yeah, right. I I actually thought they were teasing it. Oh, 
yes, totally. But here's the thing. The song was only written about two years prior to this being released, which means more like one year prior to it being recorded. And I learned, I did a little wiki wormhole deep dive on Fly Me to the Moon. (laughs) I don't think it's at all ripped off from that because I think Fly Me to the Moon, I don't know when it was literally first recorded. It was written very shortly before this was recorded. But it was not recorded by Sinatra until the early 60s, so significantly later. And the fun anecdote... I found was that it used to be in 3-4 time and a certain arranger came along and said let's put this in 4-4 and let's swing it and that's what gave us the version we know today and that man's name was Quincy Jones oh Ah, because apparently he's yes. a vampire who's just been around <laughs> since time immemorial. <laughs> Wait, dude, yeah, I, I feel like I hear so much random shit that, and they're just like oh that was Quincy Jones like, three like his, uh, I wow. didn't read his autobiography, but apparently he makes some of the most insane claims about anyone and everyone. The, I, you know, one of the things that I find to be the craziest about Quincy Jones is that he seems like he's been around forever, and he has a daughter that's like our age. And so, like, how <laughs> right. the hell? What is he like seventy yeah, when he yeah. had her or something? Like, <laughs> <laughs> call. Yeah, vampire. Good. Yeah, All right, good for him. Good for him. So worth worth mentioning, this tune is also has a weird bar formation. It's thirty three bars, eight, 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 nine. <laughs> so he, he he likes to keep it weird. I mean, you got to yeah. imagine everybody else in the band was like, "Why the nine? Can't we just do eight, 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 eight? And we just break it down by fours? Like, why are you doing this to us?" I'm sure there was some really hard reason why he had to do it, but I mean, it sounds great. I um, my note on this is that like I really, really like. Sonny Rollins sax on this one. I think it's yeah. It's I have really a note great. as well that this is one of my favorite, or my, it might be my favorite sax solo on on the yeah. album. There's like right at it's like four minutes and twenty seconds in there. He gets the kind of breathy sax. I love that kind of like breathy sax. It's not. It doesn't have a lot of attack. It's not punchy. It's kind of like. Mm-hmm. I just I for every time I hear that, it's like ASMR. It just soothes me. I'm just like, oh yeah, okay, I'm calm now. It's really, really tasteful. When I when I, I recently started listening to more of him, and I do really like him a lot. Like I said, Saxophone Colossus is where I would recommend to to jump in, dear listeners. Great record with him as a band leader. But one thing I mentioned to my piano teacher at the time, I was like, I think I had really. He's so. You're right, Tom. Like the sax is so lovely and ASMR and like relaxing. I was like, I had come to think of the saxophone in my mind as this abrasive challenging instrument he's like yeah i think that was john coltrane that did that for you <laughs> yeah yeah it's like, he's all about the squeaks it's when henry rollins picked up the saxophone and then that's when you get that sound. and then he uses it to beat some like skinhead nazi <laughs> punk <laughs> oh i can't i'd listen to that album can't wait for the black flag episode yeah <laughs> okay Let's uh, let's keep it rolling along to the only solo piano track called I Surrender My Dear. This is also the only track not written by Monk.
So you were asking about the standards. I mean, this is an example of a, of a standard. Bing Crosby originally recorded this one, but it's also been recorded by Louis Armstrong, Django Reinhardt, Ray Charles. It was partially added on at kind of in the a second session because half the band quit and they were trying to scramble, I think. <laughs> but I think this is a really nice showcase of how Monk plays piano. There are also some great solo Monk piano records that are still have these challenging angular percussive elements that we've been talking about, but do also show his command and his variety across a melody across a long period of time. As I think Adam mentioned, like he can sit down and play for an extended period of time. And I think you can really hear in a song like this and also these other solo monk tracks that you might listen to that he really truly loves standards and he loves romantic music a lot. And so what you get is like, and I think this is, a, you know, kind of the essence of what he what he is, or maybe what jazz is, is that he keeps going through the melody, he keeps reharmonizing, re-envisioning the main melody, and it gets stranger and stranger until it kind of like peaks in weirdness and distance from the original, sort of in the middle, and then he kind of brings you back, which is which is sort of nice, leads you back to sanity. So I've come to really like his solo playing a lot. I maybe I'm a little biased because I like solo piano playing generally. And I've been trying to seek out a lot of those records, but I, I think his is really lovely, and I think this is a great example. It is very romantic. You sort of highlight the sort of like romance endemic to the harmony, and he sort of does bring something else out. Uh, and I do. I, who who wrote this song? Where's the song from? You know, I didn't. I didn't write down the writer. It's like from the '30s, maybe. And Bing Crosby is the first person that recorded it. Interesting. Yeah, it does. It does have some a bit of like those like classical elements. The little sort of like you know late, you know late 1800s, 1900s sort of. It's a guy named Harry Barris who wrote it. Which, I mean, look at his picture on Wikipedia. He he looks like looks like Opie from uh, the little rascals basically or no uh alfalfa the guy with the the guy with the oh, oh god yeah he just looks like a <laughs> wow yeah he looks like a total kind of... old 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 nerd but apparently he was like really big into scat singing he was like a progenitor of scat uh weird dude but uh you know i i think that the points rob and phil that you guys just made that i really that my my note here was basically like it's really hard to keep a tonal center of a melody when you are extrapolating so much. Sure. And I didn't lose the tonal center, even though a lot of times he's way off of the tonal center, but he's off in a way that still gives you the echoes of what that tonal center should be. And I mean, that's just, again, it's really hard to do. You can't do that if you don't know, again, up and down exactly. Totally. He gets pretty weird about halfway into the track, but I know what you mean. It like, it never totally loses. You you could hum the melody through it if you needed to. (laughs) You know what he's harmonizing, even if he's not playing the thing he's harmonizing to. You know what he's harmonizing. Yeah, Yeah, sure. I want to know who was in charge of tuning the pianos during this (laughs) session, because at the 13 second mark, there's a note where he goes, ding, 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 and it's like, it sounds like the the t- the piano tuner came in and was was trying to explain to his students this is what an out of tune out of tune note sounds like ding ding ding, ding. it's totally it's off. too big is how he finds it and he's like and, yes ding ding right ding, he's ding, like ding. oh yeah
this is out. Let's lay on this for a while. And you can hear the like, I think I heard it was Lou Reed that was in charge of two I was going to say, these guys were, I don't know about Monk himself, but I know that a bunch of the players on this were heroin addicts. And so maybe the piano tuner was also on heroin. He also does the the Monk whole tone run in this song that that I oh, yeah, kind yeah, of associate yeah, sure. with him at the 505 mark he does this very distinct whole tone run down the keyboard uh which you know I, I don't know if it's his signature or just something that that he does a lot but it's it, it's in this tune if we wanted to drop it's it like here. it's like the Mr. Rogers thing almost right Mm-hmm. Oh, is that the second Mr. Rogers <laughs> yeah. reference already? Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, well, I'm gonna exactly. we're gonna drop we that whole the... tone run in just a second, just to explain to the audience what the whole tone run is. We're talking about a string of notes that are all separated by, at least like by one key on the piano, which is not what a normal scale sounds like. So just you're gonna go between C and D, and you're gonna have that sharp note in between, but you're gonna continue that spacing all the way up or down the piano. That's a whole tone scale, and it sounds like this. Yeah, you're used to the do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, where there's half steps in there. And but instead, what do we get? Resolves. Tom, sing us the whole tone line. <laughs> yeah, I'll do that right now. Oh, good luck. It's called <laughs> Phil Go Fuck Yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Call me out of the whole tone. Come on, man. I barely got the do, re, mi out. <laughs> Yo, Sonny Rollins would have been able to do that shit. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. I'm not Sonny Rollins, Alan. I think he would have known this about me by now. <laughs> but I think whole tone, another another anchor point, uh, I believe, is uh, Stevie Wonder's uh, You're the Sunshine of My Life. Yeah. That intro. It's very odd sounding. And that's another whole tone uh, scale, or another run. Being up. sung uh, by a human, Adam Laskowski. Which is probably Or off. a guy that I hate. But is worth mentioning is the beginning of Fly Like an Eagle, the Steve Miller <laughs> song. Strike it from the record. Yeah. Yeah. Thelonious Monk and Steve Miller together at last. It's a pretty cool song. I can't really deny that Fly Like an Eagle is kind of cool, right? No, I can deny it. It's pretty easy. Yeah, it sucks. All right, let's move on to. I'm not going to defend Steve Miller. So. <laughs> Let's move on to the last song on the record, and the last one we're going to talk about, Bemsha Swing. This was my favorite track on the on the record. I am not surprised to learn that MMW Mineski Martin Wood, like I said, covered it because 
I feel like I learned what little I know of jazz by way of groups like MMW who were doing like a new form of it back when we were in college. Yeah, I thought it was cool. I thought I, I don't know if I was catching any kind of like Latin, you know, kind of vibes from this. The I thought the um, the timpani, I guess, is what it is. I just yeah. added this like thunder every now and again that just gave it so much like heft that normally wouldn't be something that I would think like, oh, maybe you should add some timpani. But I, it it just I thought it was a really <laughs> nice touch. So apparently the the tune is he was co-written with a guy called Denzel Best who's from Barbados and Bimsher is a colloquial name for Barbados so they were they were attempting to conjure some some tropical sort of flavor but yeah it feels a little like a seaside bar in a James Bond film where he's sort of looking around the room looking for the villain or something yeah yeah it's got it's got like a bit of a menacing edge on top of the island rhythms <laughs> but this was the one where it had the different crew right though. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, this is where they brought in Paul Chambers and Clark Terry, who was an older older generation guy, or maybe he was kind of of a similar age to Thelonious, but he was one of the main guys that Miles Davis looked to as a trumpet player. I think he came from this, I think he must have come from St. Louis as well or something. He played with Duke Ellington's band. And this guy, Paul Chambers, who we mentioned was a really young bass player, but went on to have a starring role in, I reckon, the most popular jazz album of all time, Miles Davis' is Kind of Blue. And then died at 33 years old. <laughs> Oof. Apparently from died at 33? Paul Chambers, the bass player, died at 33 from tuberculosis. Uh, but they they posit that the tuberculosis was greatly uh, inflamed by his raging alcohol and heroin addictions. Yeah, so There was a lot of yeah. drug and alcohol complications that. and young deaths, sadly, amongst a group yeah. like this. Yeah. I want to I want to throw out something about Paul Chambers, and I think it speaks to a a kind of a mainstay of jazz in that a lot of jazz improv is just like hitting a bad quote unquote bad note and just f- sticking with it and just having the confidence and courage to be like no that's the note it's not <laughs> I know you'd like by all accounts it's, it's not the note trick. but yeah. that's the note he does at like it's at like. 544 he starts doing this bass run where he runs through he runs through the melody of the song and he plays the melody the like the main hook and then just on the last note he just hits a wildly wrong note and it's like subverting your expectation of what you think the melody even is but he just lays into it confidently it's not a passing note he just lands on like a ball and you're like oh it's like a joke yeah exactly <laughs> it is almost like a joke Dude, if you're gonna fuck up, do it with conviction, man. I've I've learned that. But that's the thing; it's it's not a fuck up. Like I, you can tell he meant to do that because he just played the melody perfectly, and then on the last note, the note that you would definitely know to land on if you were trying to do it perfectly, he's just like, nah. Instead of going bump, I'm gonna go bah. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> like, reminds me of a Doctor Katz yeah. episode I once <laughs> I once enjoyed. Yeah. I had a production note that I I know he's using the same piano because that same <laughs> note is out of tune. It's the second note in the song, and it's the same note. Well, there's the thing. Right at the beginning, he just messes up. 
He like he's trying to play the melody and he just messes it up. But I feel like so much uh so many mistakes like that are just papered over by being like it's jazz. It's just jazz, right. man. But like he just plays the wrong note and you can kind of tell that he's not even purposely trying to play it cuz he sort of does like a link <laughs> thing like I know what you mean he got to stop. Well, you got to listen to the yeah. notes he's not playing. Yeah, I was listening to the notes he was playing, and it was wrong. I could have done and not that even from like home. Interestingly wrong. It was just like you're trying to establish the tonal center of the song right. And we're talking like eight seconds into the song, and he, he plays a wrong <laughs> note. And uh, yeah, I, I was that was interesting. I, I agree that some of it, in hindsight, gets chalked up to well, it's jazz, and so that's okay. But I think it also relates to, and this is something we've touched on before in podcasts previous. Our concept of what it means to record music has changed a lot. Our threshold for what is acceptable in terms of rightness mm-hmm. has changed measurably. And we, we have plenty of examples even throughout the albums we've touched on that illustrate this. But I think jazz in particular, you, you, Tom's not wrong, right? He's got a point, and that's part of it, what he said, which is that it's all jazz, man, sort of covers over a lot of bullshit. But... There's also this idea that is part of the jazz ethos, which is this only happens one time and we're capturing it and it is what it is and it's not what it's not moving on. Right. And move. You know, Rob, I think this actually sort of brings back that David Byrne book. Right. I remember in that book, he talked about the idea that before recorded music, people didn't singers and violinists didn't utilize vibrato the same way, right? Because it's harder to discern somebody who's being slightly sharp or slightly flat. And that like recording, the dawning of recording resulted in a very noticeable change in the way people used vibrato, which was either as an effect or to disguise that they couldn't hold a note, Mm. right? Because they were frequently asked to hit notes dead on. Whereas in a, in a performance scenario, right, which was more common, vibrato, old school, right, pre-recording, vibrato would have been used all over the place to cover up your, your, your rough edges, yeah. right? Um, and it's sort of the same thing here with the jazz, where, with the jazz, man. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, it's, the, it's the same thing in that, like, the range of both in and potential notes available is so varied that your your ear has a broader range of allowable correct answers right whereas like you get into a, a, like a super tight modern pop song they're taking certain notes and putting them quote unquote out of tune right sharp or flat because this song is in this key and we can make the thirds resonate more if we do it like this like weird Black magic science stuff, right? Well, and also a lot of auto tune. <laughs> Let's be clear yes, about that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, yeah. I'm, but I'm talking like auto tune, like uh, we're gonna tune our major thirds sharp because it'll sound more beautiful as long as we never have to hit these other notes in the song. I, right. I saw a really interesting breakdown. It was on YouTube, and it was a guy who was basically saying Michael Bublé uses auto tune and talk about like a jazz standard singer like Michael Bublé just uses autotune and he says he doesn't and maybe he doesn't even know that they do it after the fact but <laughs> oh is this a British guy I don't remember and, if he, it was British and he's not. got I, I, I think it's got Freddie Mercury about. and Michael Bublé and it's like tracking the just like the yeah the, yep. the graph of the, the notes waveform. and yeah. like Michael Bublé's are just snapping up to the line and staying there and snapping yeah. down to the other line he's like just nobody does mm-hmm. that Freddie Mercury is one of the greatest singers of all time <laughs> and this note here he's sharp 
It sounds great, but yep. he's sharp, like mm-hmm. undeniably. And Michael Bublé is just right on the note, and that <laughs> yeah, is probably so. part of the reason why Michael Bublé sounds like soulless jazz. So, so this is <laughs> you just defended all our entire audience of housewives throughout the nation. Right? <laughs> 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 See, yeah, that 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 attempts to speak to why why a certain pitch might be out of tune and why that might be acceptable, and and we can postulate in Adam's case of the one piano note, whether Thelonious Monk himself, when he was playing it, knew that it was out. And in fact, that's why he hit it a few more times. It's certainly possible, right? But what I want to additionally say, you know, what, what I was trying to say was that I think the spirit of jazz is about pushing the envelope at all times. And so I am confident that if you were to ask any of these players, would you rather err on the side of having a take with mistakes or a take where you held back to play it safe. You know, I know which one they'd choose. And I just think that's a lot of the ethos that's guided. It doesn't mean the mistake didn't happen. I'm sure they would cop to it. And we can laugh about it. But that's that's the ethos they're going for. And that's not an ethos that's really being yeah. gone for anymore. Often, anyway. Okay, that represents all the tracks. We've talked, I think we've covered the entire history of jazz, I believe, in the last hour, so we're good. <laughs> Fuck you, Ken Burns. Um, <laughs> Stretches out into 10 hours. You could put this album on twice in the background. Yeah. You know, just to round it out with the rest of Thelonious' career before we vote, you know, he, he after this record came out, it was his first sort of critical and commercial success. He started to get noticed by the general jazz buying public. He was already well liked amongst the jazz musician community and people like Coltrane, who considered him a mentor, always loved him. But he found this new audience and he reached a wider audience sort of shortly after this and we kind of had a little bit of a heyday in the late 50s and early 60s. He kept going, composing through the 60s. He kind of retired from public life in the 70s. And, you know, doing like giants of jazz tours with with the old guys like Dizzy Gillespie and Art Blakey and stuff like that for money, but eventually died of a stroke at age 65. Still quite young. You have to throw in the anecdote about when he was on that tour with the giants of jazz tour. There's the a note and uh, who said it? Quincy Jones. Uh, McKibben, his bassist, basically said that on that tour, he didn't say two words. And I was like, I'm not even being facetious he didn't say good morning he didn't say good night he didn't communicate with anybody at all didn't talk the entire time and he was like why i don't know the only thing i know is that he sent word back after the tour was over that the reason he couldn't communicate or play was that art blakey and i were so ugly That is the most determined boosh of all time. I can't even talk to you because you're just so ugly. I'm sorry. (laughs) We toured for four months so he could slam me at the end. Yeah, Yeah, Al McKibben said that. (laughs) He was truly a strange person. He was probably undiagnosed bipolar. He had these manic periods of intense creativity. And then he, you know, deep areas of deep depression, he would sometimes fall asleep at the piano, which a lot of times in those days, if someone fell asleep at their instrument, that meant nodding off from heroin. That doesn't appear to have been the case with Monk. That was like legitimate sort of sickness. And I wanted to mention this thing that I kind of came across that I think sums up a lot of a lot of important stuff, which is the template for jazz musicians, famous ones, was kind of pick a persona and lean in. So with 
Louis Armstrong is like the grinning entertainer. Duke Ellington is the suave, debonair maestro. Miles Davis is the prickly, image-obsessed chameleon. And Monk got the unappreciated genius, eccentric but unappreciated genius. And he kind of he took it on initially. But the problem was that he actually was really, really weird and introverted and perhaps <laughs> mentally ill. And so it really was a burden to him, ultimately. He couldn't quite, like, capitalize on it in a way those other guys, I think, could. Can we also just throw out for a second that his full name is Thelonious Sphere Monk? Yes. That, which is just a really damn cool that's name. An awesome, I, that's an awesome... Great point. His middle name is Sphere? Yes. Sphere. These are yes. all real names from damn. his birth certificate, by the way. Yeah. Wow. I mean, if your name is Thelonious Monk and you're not just the coolest goddamn person in the world, like, what do you even, like, Thelonious Monk's not an accountant. He's not like, hey, let me talk to you about these actuary tables. Like, (laughs) okay. He's like, he's like, you do me a favor. Can you detune my piano before you <laughs> <laughs> Just pick any string and detune it. Yeah. I'll find it. I'll find All it. my horn players are in heroin, so like, it's going to freak them out when I start playing this wrong note. They're going to think something's wrong with them. They got a bad batch or something. <laughs> okay. So we've come to the end where we're going to vote. We, I think, fawned all over Monk and his place in jazz history, or at least I feel I have. He's an important figure in the development of the art form. But the question really remains is, does this album, Brilliant Corners, is it a must-hear before you die? So we're going to throw this one around the room for a vote, and I'm going to kick it first to Tom. I am going to invoke the Loretta Lynn rule here, which is that I don't know enough about his catalog to know if this is the best album of his to listen to, but I know you need to listen to some of his catalog. So, sure, why the hell not listen to this one? It's not for everybody, certainly. It's not super accessible. It's good, but you need to really give it a chance and you need to really stew on it for a little bit. But it's quite good. If you're not going to listen to this album, listen to some other Monk album, maybe Monk Stream. Um, but yeah, it. I think it makes a list based upon the totality of the catalog. This is Adam. Uh, that one out of tune piano note ruined it for me. It's a no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. This was great history, Rob. Thank you. His story is very cool. This album was challenging, but fun at times. I think it's definitely worth a listen. I think you should hear this before you die. Yeah, this is Alan. I agree with all that. I think, Tom, you, you said it best. I, I really don't know if this is... It, it's held up as some of his best work, but um, I, I did enjoy it. I think... To not listen to this could potentially mean you're not listening to any of his music at all, especially if you're going off this list truly. Um, and so, yeah, for that reason, I, I definitely think it, it's worth a listen. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a great record. The title track, Brilliant Corners, is really challenging and really does sound hip, you know, 70 years later, which really is saying yeah. something. I also think that you know, uh, this is definitely an opportunity to sort of go to the source. Like if you listen to this record, if you're curious about jazz and you listen to this record and you really genuinely don't like it, there's a whole bunch of other stuff you can kind of just rule out, right? Because this is definitely a sort of a, a, a very, I'd say important building block for certain types of later jazz. And you probably just steer clear of that stuff too, right? So uh, I, I think in that way, um, you know, I, I think, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I think it's definitely a must listen. Yeah, I really 
you know, having spent so much time with Monk over the past year, studying, learning some of his songs, trying to learn the jazz catalog generally, and then spending a, a good amount of time on this pretty exhaustive biography of him, I, I really sweated this one this week because I was trying to get a handle on what the rest of the catalog sounded like. I can tell you, just to echo what everyone said, it does not have his most well-known songs or even what I consider his best songs, and it certainly doesn't have his most accessible songs. And uh, big surprise, I compiled a little Thelonious Monk primer playlist with some of those songs on it if you want to dive a little deeper into some of the melodies that he's maybe most known for and that are maybe a little more accessible, stuff like Straight No Chaser and Blue Monk and the aforementioned Monk's Dream, Rhythmining. He has a lot of great compositions, basically, that you can go out there and find, and maybe this will be a jumping off point for you. Adam, Adam, straight no chaser has a great like pedal tone thing, like left hand, and I'm sure it would just drive you nuts. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Right. So, but that said, I'm going to land on yes, for the reason that this is not about it being the most accessible. It has so many ideas on it, and I equated it in my mind after really going deep with it and listening to it many times, I equated a little bit to reading a book of sci-fi short stories. Which is to say, there's a lot of ideas that stick with me. Even if the individual plot lines don't always resonate with me in the moment, I tend to carry the ideas that are being expressed through those stories a long way into the future. That plus what everyone else said, that it still feels fresh, which is insanely impressive, right? So he's important to jazz. This album is challenging, no doubt about it. But given that it's the only one on the list, and given that this list is not about accessibility, but it is probably more about jazz albums, which is about great lineups and lightning in a bottle. And the title track is admittedly just amazing, in my opinion. So absolutely do yourself a favor, listen to it. Monk, you're would be over a hundred by now, and you're long dead, but congratulations, buddy. The cat in the hat, you're on the list. <laughs> the validation you've been waiting okay. for. That, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So with that said, I think all that remains is for us to pick what album we're going to be listening to next week. And I will throw it to Tom for that. Excellent. All right. I have the Albinator here. It is all ready to go. So without any further ado, drum roll, please. Next week, we will be listening to the album Step in the Arena by Gangstar. I'm going to guess not a lot of jazz standards on that one. Guru. I think I saw them, actually. If you can believe it. You saw Gangstar? They opened, if I'm thinking the same band, I saw Rage Against the Machine back in like 2000, maybe maybe 1999. I don't know. It was when when they came out with that like Battle for Los Angeles album. And I'm almost positive Gangstar opened, and I don't remember much of it, but I just remember them being... On the bill is I again the the idiot over here is Gang what what a genre it's like early nineties hip hop right it's like late late oh, okay. I think it's like late nineties right. I, I wasn't sure if it was like wasn't sure if it was metal if they're opening up for uh, <laughs> well I, w- I was gonna say I think but... the I think it's a duo right and the rapper is sadly passed rest in power but I know I heard about them recently because I think DJ Premier the other half of the duo has been opening for Tom Segura the comedian what well wow, really <laughs> interesting okay. <laughs> It's fun. Yeah, Guru died uh, in 2010 at 48 years old. Damn. Yeah, really interested to dive into this one. I know the name. 
I think just because it's kind of a cool name, but I could not tell you a second of what their sound is like. So very interested to dive into this one. I, I popped it on real quick and I am familiar with the title track, Step in the Arena. Is that like the Guns N' Roses song, Get in the Ring? <laughs> it's nothing like that. Isn't that the one where he just like complains about a whole bunch of people that he hates? Oh, he, he doesn't, doesn't complain. He up? basically like tells them to fuck themselves and that he's going to kick their ass. Hey, what's the one? Bob Guccione Jr., you and your dad can go fuck yourselves. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> Keep it classy, Axel. <laughs> okay, I, I think that's going to wrap it up for us. Phil, you got something you want to say? Before we wrap it up, I wanted to congratulate Tom on the, uh, the big news about Daniel Radcliffe. Starring in Weird, the Weird Al Yankovic oh. story, uh, coming out later. This I have year. already watched what? the teaser trailer. I am super <laughs> freaking stoked for it. It's uh, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Yeah, it's a high end biopic. Yeah. So, <laughs> but it also looks like it's a little bit like fantastical. Like it, you know, it's, it doesn't look like it's like a super straight by reality. I think there's going to be a little bit of a parody version of it. Uh, like yeah. it's like a parody biopic almost. Um, I watched super the, stoked. Yeah, it looked a little Scott Pilgrim esque or something. Yeah. By the way, props to Harry Potter for really mixing it up post Harry Potter <laughs> in terms of his career. He's taking some taking some bold uh, stances and uh, oh, really yeah. taking on some really weird roles. And good for him. He's like, I already have the eighty million dollars. So like, what are yeah, you going to do yeah, to me? Now I can just have fun. Yeah. Yeah, totally. yeah. Okay, well, I think that's going to wrap it up for today. <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking to you all. We'll look forward to listening to the Gangstar album this week, and we will see you all back here next week. If you want to drop us a line at 1001albumcomplaints at Gmail, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I've been Rob. I'm Tom. I'm Adam. I'm Alan. And I'm Phil. Boosh. <laughs> <laughs>